1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we dive in this week, I'd like to put out a call to all you writers of flash horror fiction, aspiring and established alike. Tales to Terrify is looking for bite-sized horror of 2,000 words or less. We don't currently pay for flash fiction, but it's a great opportunity to have your work read by one of our volunteer narrators and featured on the podcast. Check out the submission guidelines on the Tales to Terrify website for a better idea of what we're looking for. Then, email your flash stories to us at tales to terrify at gmail dot com. We'd love to see... What kind of devilish delights your deviant mind can conjure? But for now, let's get back on the road, shall we? This week we find ourselves traveling the highways of Georgia. From zombie outbreaks to haunted houses, the state is a popular location for horror on both the big and small screens. Whether that's due to the history of plantations and slavery, or the many bloody conflicts of the American Civil War or even the fact that the Center for Disease Control is headquartered in Atlanta. There are many reasons for hauntings and other horrific happenings, real and fictional, to be centered on the state. But the reason behind one of the state's more active paranormal sites lies much deeper below the surface. Lake Lanier lies in the northern part of Georgia, amongst the sprawling foothills of the North Georgia Mountains. The largest lake in the state, it's an impressive body of water and a popular spot for water activities of all kinds. But that wasn't always the case. Lake Lanier is a man-made reservoir, created in the 1950s when the Buford Dam was completed along the Chattahoochee River, flooding farmland, homes, and towns. In addition to forcing the relocation of a large number of people living in that part of the foothills, The many non-living residents of the twenty cemeteries in the area had to be moved as well. Trouble was, some of the graves were very old, so identifying the bodies in order to properly rebury them wasn't really possible. Some say that the restless souls whose remains were moved into unmarked graves never really left, and still haunt the waters of the lake roaming the flooded streets of the mostly intact settlements hidden deep below the surface. It's a chilling vision, to say the least. It's easy to see why Lake Lanier might have gained a reputation for being cursed, but there's more to it than just an unsettling backstory. Throughout the years, the lake has been the site of an excessive number of deaths and disappearances, Sure, some of that's the result of accidents on the water, or a deadly combination of boating and booze, but some deaths are a little harder to explain. Some survivors of near-drownings have reported being pulled down and held under the water by cold, unseen hands. Many others weren't as lucky, disappearing under the surface of the calm waters, never to be seen again. Not all those who are lost, however, stay that way. In 1958, not long after the lake was formed, Delia Parker Young and her friend Susie Roberts were headed out for a night at Three Gables in nearby Dawsonville. They pulled over at a gas station along the way, near the Lanier Bridge, to fuel up Susie's 1954 Ford, but they never paid for the gas. In fact, that was the last the pair were seen. The only clue to their possible fate was a set of skid marks leading over the side of the Lanier Bridge and into the lake below. Divers searched the lake, but the murky water was littered with branches and broken tree trunks, and no trace of the women or the vehicle surfaced. Not for eighteen months, anyway. C.A. Simpson was out fishing on the lake not far from the Lanier Bridge. As he cast and reeled, his line caught fast on something on the bed of the lake. A branch or a log, no doubt, the lake was littered with them. He pulled on the rod, steady yet firm, not wanting to lose his tackle to the obstacle. Just when he thought he'd have to cut the line, the hook pulled free and he reeled it to the surface, accompanied by a torrent of bubbles. And as the lure broke the surface, so did something much larger. The decomposing body of a young woman. A body, it turned out, that was missing two toes from the left foot and both hands. It wasn't easily identifiable, but many speculated it was the body of Delia. And since it couldn't be identified, it was eventually buried in an unmarked grave in Alta Vista Cemetery. Then the mystery went cold. It wasn't until November of 1990 that the next piece of the puzzle would surface. Construction crews working on an expansion to the Lanier Bridge were dredging the bottom of the lake and uncovered the rusted remains of a 1954 Ford. And in the driver's seat, the remains of a human body too decomposed to recognize. A purse Rings and watch found with the body, however, allowed them to identify the long-missing Susie Roberts. She was buried beside her friend, Delia Parker Young, in Alta Vista Cemetery, and they were finally able to give Delia a proper gravestone. Despite finding the vehicles and the bodies of the two women, no one was able to determine why Delia's hands and toes had been missing. But that doesn't mean Delia herself has given up hope of finding them. The specter of a ghostly young woman in a blue dress and with missing hands has been said to walk the Lanier Bridge at night. Known as the Lady of the Lake, she paces the bridge under the moonlight, searching for those parts of her that still remain unfound. I think it's time we found a little something for you. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Greg Sturman. Greg Sturman is a writer born, bred, and now based in the East End of London. Inconveniently, inspiration usually pays Greg its visits after midnight. He locks the doors, but it still manages to find a way in. Being left alone in a darkened room as a child, with a crackly recording of Edgar Allan Poe's The Tell-Tale Heart Playing, first turned Greg on to the world of horror and changed his life. His idea of heaven is stumbling across a second-hand bookshop in an unfamiliar town and having the time to browse the shelves. Greg is currently putting together a collection of short fiction in the 19th century fantasy tradition of E.T.A. Hoffman with the title Coin Operated Stories. He promises it will include a number of monsters, mad inventors, automata, and a good deal of pseudo-scientific magic. He's also writing a horror novel in the Southern Gothic style, set in Mississippi during the 1930s, concerning a former plantation house and slave farm. This book, Eva and Numa, will feature ancestral sins, murder and mayhem, racial and sexual tension, haints, curses, conjurer women, and... At least one very bloodthirsty voodoo doll. Greg doesn't blog or tweet, and barely posts on Facebook. Someday he'll establish a social media presence. Meanwhile, he can be contacted in the old-school fashion, via his email at redtailrooster at yahoo.co.uk. Children of the night, feast your ears on Greg Sturman's Grand Guignol, a Tales to Terrify original.
2: "'Dear Thomas, "'This is the latest iteration of the letter "'I've tried several times to write to you. "'Hopefully this time I will finish it. "'Hopefully this time I will send it off. "'I wish to offer here my sincerest apology "'for my behavior over the past ten months.' I've demonstrated an unconscionable rudeness, not only to yourself and to the rest of the family, but to a great many other people who are dear to me. The shame I feel for how I've ignored and excluded you all from my life is close to overwhelming. Even as I write this, I'm having difficulty looking on the words as they form behind my hand, for seeing them as tantamount to looking you square in the eye. I know from what Mum and Dad have let slip that you're unhappy with how they've stepped in to support me financially. And as much as I've loathed taking their money, the fact that their charities cause friction between you and them has made me feel so much worse. I assure you, our parents' generosity with the little they have has been a vital lifeline. I honestly don't know where I'd be without it. I've been out of work for nearly a year, and I've been entirely unable to engage with finding any means of employment, no matter how temporary or how humble. It's also true I've been unable to cope with the pressures and demands of applying for state benefits, universal credit, as I believe they're now calling them, and so haven't received any other funds for my rent or for basic necessities coming in. I had a very bad experience when I saw my doctor. He wrote me a prescription for antidepressants, which I found had not a scintilla of effect on how I was feeling, and since then I have been unable to find the strength of will to return to the surgery. Other supplements and mood boosters I have obtained over the Internet have likewise proved useless. I had an even worse experience at the job center. I was told I'd have to fill out a form to receive financial assistance. Well, I answered their questions as truthfully and as thoroughly as possible, but when I was contacted a few weeks later, they informed me my application had failed, as I would not received enough points according to their system to meet the criteria for receiving aid. As they suggested, I wrote back and requested an appeals form. But after I'd read a few pages into it and learnt what I needed to do in order to launch an appeal, I stopped reading and did nothing more with it. In any case, it's now too late to send the form off, as I've missed the return date by which an appeal could be launched by several months. I've lacked the energy to embark upon the whole humiliating process a second time. If I haven't been working, then I assure you that neither have I been playing. I do not do anything particular with my life these days, least of all socially. I've lost myself in television, on the set I've not renewed my license for. I finally got around to canceling the direct debt on my gym membership after six months of wasted payments. I've grown fat and unhealthy. I try hard not to drink or smoke too much, but I know that I do. I'd drink and I'd smoke a lot more if it wasn't for the fact Mum and dad are paying for everything I buy. I've cut off contact with all of my friends. Cindy, if you remember her, hasn't been in touch, and mother says it's bad of her, and she really should have come over, but I don't blame her. The last time I spoke with Cindy, it didn't go well. A week after I'd pulled the landline telephone out of its socket, Dad visited me. He was on his own this time. We sat for an hour on the couch with him holding my hand and neither of us saying anything. Dad waiting for me to speak and explain to him what was on my mind. I couldn't do this. I couldn't even ask him to tell me how the radiotherapy treatment he was receiving for his prostate cancer was going as much as I wanted to. I couldn't bear to hear anything from him, especially that. But I'm rambling on, surely sounding more pathetic the longer I bemoan my lot. You don't want to hear this, do you, Thomas? If this is to be a real apology, then it has to contain an explanation. Therefore, I must tell you, you who I understand are doubtful of what you've heard second hand of my condition, what brought me to where I am now. "'Yet it's exactly this I'm so reluctant to talk about. "'This, my experience on the day I suffered my breakdown, "'is what sat mute on my lips, determined not to be spoken of "'the day Dad came over alone and we sat together on the settee. "'Why did I stay silent? "'Why didn't I at least try to explain to Dad what had happened to me?' It's the same reason I'm having such a problem getting down to explaining it to you now. It was all so strange and unlikely. I suppose that's it in a nutshell. I'm aware it must sound an utterly ridiculous excuse when put like that. I assure you I'm perfectly conscious of it myself. Even so, it remains the truth. The entire episode was so incredibly strange and unlikely as to render it outright impossible. "'and that's precisely what makes it so difficult to disclose. "'And yet it happened. "'It happened on the afternoon of the 22nd of February "'while I was wandering around a shopping mall. "'The mall was in a small town in the Midlands. "'I shan't tell you the name of the town, Thomas, "'although this is the only detail I intend withholding from you. "'I believe this is for your own good.' "'Was there any significance to the date? "'Was there anything I'd done wrong to lead me to the mall that particular afternoon? "'You'll think me paranoid, I'm sure, but I've run through all of my actions, "'all of my dealings in the weeks leading up to that day, "'again and again and again since it happened. "'I've ruminated a lot on that time, "'almost as much as I've dwelt on what came afterwards.' trying to perceive some telltale sign of a malevolent influence interjecting and interfering at some sleight-of-hand juncture, taking control over the course of my life and guiding me on to the disaster. I suppose what I've wanted to discover is whether some sort of bad move was made on either mine or another person's part. Yes, paranoid, as I say, but that's really the best way I can think to describe it. A bad move made anyway as crazy as what i've just admitted must sound you'll be relieved to hear i've been forced to admit defeat i've found no explanation to account for it beyond sheer randomness blind fate as the saying goes No matter how closely I re-examine the circumstances, I always come away concluding it sprung from a perfectly mundane series of logically progressing coincidences with no externally derived direction behind it. But I continue to maintain something was at work beneath the surface of reality that day. It's true I did something that day, Thursday the 22nd of February, that I don't normally do, Namely, visit a place I felt positive I'd never been to before. But then the company sent me out to places like that several times a year. No, there was nothing odd about either the town or my being there. As much as I've struggled to discern anything untoward, anything ulterior, it might be better to say, about it, I'm forced to put it down to happenstance. The same applies to my subsequent decision once I'd dropped off the package responsible for my going there, to explore the town's heart, to walk through the high street and from there go on to the small shopping complex. That's what my logical mind tells me. Yet I can't shake the conviction where I went and what befell me there was a destiny decided long in advance of its occurrence, from as far back as childhood, in fact. "'but I'm still not getting to the point. "'As I stated, I had a good reason for being in the town. "'I was delivering an order to a business "'my employers enjoyed a long-established relationship with. "'Forgive me, Thomas, for the further remission of that business's name. "'We'd been posting components off to their premises, "'calibrators and capacitors and such, for years, "'since long before they took me on.' Although occasionally they'd placed an order with us for a piece of electrical equipment we deemed too fragile to be dispatched with our regular courier, consequently somebody in the dispatch office was asked to drive up to them and hand it over personally. I'd been at Morgan and Rayner's for six years by then, and thus far it had always fallen to someone else to make the delivery. That morning, for what I have to concede were perfectly straightforward and practical reasons, it fell to me. I was happy enough that it did, incidentally. The business's location was a good many miles' drive up from East London, but with the sat-nav in the car, it was a simple enough exercise. I reached the building at the address I'd been given, introduced myself, and after a brief chat with the receptionist handed over the heavy box of sensitive electrical components I'd carried in, I was then left free for the remainder of the day. On the drive up, i decided I'd spend whatever was left of the afternoon exploring the streets of the adjacent town. I enjoy wandering around unfamiliar places, as I'm sure you know, especially when I'm by myself. It's what I always choose to do if given the opportunity. I feel I was acting well within my character. The feeling of déjà vu settled over me slowly, like a scentless, invisible mist let loose in the air. I was sure I didn't consciously know the town. Indeed, I don't believe I've ever heard its name spoken or seen it written down outside of my work for Morgan and Rainer's or not to the stage of remembering it. The streets were fairly busy, and for the most part, the people looked happy. I suppose any outsider would have judged the town a disappointingly generic place, increasingly homogeneous as the country's become over the past few decades. Yet turning corners and peering down alleyways, I grew alert to a dim sense of accumulative recognition The idea was solidifying that at a vague point in the past I'd been here before. So hazy in detail was the memory, however, I suppose that if it wasn't my mind playing a trick on me, as it did seem at first the more plausible explanation, it could only have been in excess of thirty-plus years earlier, back when I was a boy. Trying to actively remember didn't help. "'didn't provide my thoughts with any anchoring detail. "'No specific time of day or season suggested itself. "'Likewise, I could see no purpose for my ever being so distant "'from the site of our childhood home. "'It would have been back when we lived on Clarence Road in Walthamstow, I'm I'm sure. When, "'When had we ever gone up to the Midlands as a family? "'Did we have a second cousin at some remove living there?' A far-flung spur of the wider family tree? On Mother's side, I mean? There's none that I can think of. Had there been an air show or a military museum Dad wanted us to visit? I wonder if you have any answer to provide me, although, of course, you'd been even younger than I was. Maybe we stopped off somewhere the time we went up to Scotland and the locks. Can you even remember that holiday, Thomas?' You would have been walking by then, I'm sure. I think Mum might have possessed a great-aunt or a friend of an aunt living in the Lake District. From there it wouldn't have been far. Eventually I came into a square. It was one of those formerly daring architectural statements of modernity— A rectangular opening between buildings, scraped out and fashioned in that blocky concrete and steel style so favored during the 70s and 80s, but which has, in my opinion, not aged well. There were signs up on poles in two languages advertising an upcoming Punjabi History Week— A wash of memory passed over me when I saw the signs, a recognition of being exactly in that spot at a prior time when the only women passing me wearing headscarves were not Asian, but rather elderly white women with pushing trolleys, with sensible buckle-down shoes on their feet and thick, milky tea-brown stockings on their legs, and with non-store-branded shopping bags suspended from their wrinkled hands. With its gaudily colored and decaying tilling, its preposterous fountain not working, designed to look conspicuously ignoble to its adult contemplators and as uninteresting as possible to children, and the scaffold-legged incredibly ugly clock tower beside it, the square was quite repellent to the eye. The worst summation of functionalist post war British architecture. And yet, taking in the sight of everything was undeniably providing a glorious thrill to my heart. When I analyzed this feeling, I realized it was the fondness evoked by an old, and more importantly, I suppose, long buried memory, precisely because it was old and long buried like a dull, color-drained, scenic photograph on the front of an aged postcard that's nevertheless capable of dredging up from the depth of a great distance happy thoughts of a barely-remembered holiday. I think that serves well as metaphor. This had to explain it. Nostalgia, however oblique its prompt— was the only emotion capable of making me absorb with such delicious warmth the dated aesthetic of the misconceived town square. When I crossed through the square and turned a corner, I discovered myself at the entrance to a self-contained shopping complex. Personally, I wouldn't have said it was large enough to consider itself a fully-fledged mall— but then that's what the signs spread above the glass double doors of the entranceway proclaimed it. The mall was spread broadly over two floors, connected by both escalators and elevators. I estimate it contained some four, possibly some five dozen different premises squeezed in between the two levels. As for the connecting architecture, the mall's interior looked discolored with hue's for its tonal choices and style of furnish exemplified the mid-seventies. If the place could have updated itself for a more contemporary expression, then it would have done so, but it was locked in concrete into its prefabricated shell. That shell was looking rather shabby today, crumbling somewhat at the edges. I'd estimate the mall as being forty, maybe as much as fifty years in age constructed during the same era as the square outside. If I'd really been in here before, I told myself, it would have looked sparklingly new. That fit in exactly with how I was remembering it, if that's truly what I was doing. Due to the obvious upkeep extended to it, the mini-mall looked tired, but not too moribund, for its interior displayed a quality of ingrained charm although it was probably more by luck than by planning it was so agreeable a place to be in, I didn't think it at all surprising such features as the molded plastic beasts of the play area or the fancy of the brightly mosaic-domed canopy overhead would have delighted me at an age more susceptible to their novelties and thus tethered the whole into place in my memory. Indeed, so pleasant were my surroundings that struck me as peculiar. "'Our parents should chance upon this temple to leisurely commerce and then fail to return. "'Do you remember any of this as I've described it to you, Thomas? "'I hope that you do. "'I ever so vaguely recall you, together with Mum and Dad, of course, "'being with me at times during that earlier trip. "'At times I could almost feel the touch of your hand.' I walked through a thin churn of oblivious early afternoon shoppers inside a numbed haze of tantalizing repetition, feeling I'd become sort of a double visitor to this outwardly mundane yet, for me, inwardly mysterious edifice. The haunting sensation I wrote of experiencing earlier was stronger here. Like the people i passed outside, the locals in the mall seemed ordinary, plain-faced, and essentially decent specimens of humanity, while at the same time they were rather anachronistic in their features. There was a good spread of young and old, white and brown, male and female, but many of their clothes appeared at least a decade out of date in the style of previous fashion cycles. I noticed fluorescent socks. Fat kipper ties parka coats with fur-drimmed hoods plaid jackets with shoulder pads jazzy cardigans stone-washed denim ripped denim and Doc Martin boots with tiny flowers painted on the sides hyper-colored t-shirts and beat strings and trainers with tiny wheels in the heel football tops of long-past seasons Those rucksacks they produced for a time with the single ergonomically designed shoulder strap on them. Do you know, Thomas, I don't think I saw a single person using a mobile phone. Believe it or not, I found this quite unsettling. What's more, it surprised me to see a handful of outlets for chain stores I'd assumed had folded. That they were still in business, at least in business here, also disturbed me. I can't recall what they were now. I wish I could, so I might check on their trading status. But the names of the shops I'm thinking of, I've been unable to recollect. There was piped Muzak, too. Something I thought they'd stopped inflicting on shoppers nowadays. Outside of the teenager shops, I mean. The Muzak's indistinct, heavily muffled artificial tones complemented my mood perfectly as I drifted around in a daze. To say more on my mood, I felt a mix of curiosity and foreboding pervading my consciousness. It would be wrong to suggest the feeling was that uncommon or even that unpleasant, but was the curiosity truly existing in the here and the now— Or was it an echo of the naive juvenile interest in the unknown world drawn from those earlier times I was by that stage consciously willing myself to re-experience? As for the sense of foreboding in me, was it really rising in my instincts of its own accord, I wondered, or was it merely the replaying of an old and sentimental tune? It was easy to entertain these vague and solipsistic thoughts while ignoring the tug of the anxiety to generate them. I cannot imagine how I could have felt anything differently. Several times I had to scold myself to dismiss the ludicrous notion I'd somehow slipped literally into the past. I felt the pressure of suppressed memories trying to resurface, if that's understandable, and this turned a touch sharper whenever I came to the mall's focal points, those objects occupying the gaps between the shops to serve as its engines of purpose, its toilets, its benches, its photo booth, its plastic shrubs set in plastic chips of dirt and marble-effect tanks, its children's play area its stained glass canopy, the thick glucose-brown glass plates of its little mezzanine breaks, its empty information booths, a wedge-shaped construction utilizing the angle left beneath for the escalators. I remember seeing a capless bureau and what I presumed was a balled-up receipt discarded on the booth's dusty Formica counter. I believe I saw a water fountain. "'although I cannot be sure. "'I don't recall seeing one of those at a shopping mall for years. "'I also think I might have seen, "'and this I do so dearly wish I could be positive of, "'an elevated brushed chrome stand for the disposal of cigarette butts.' Each of these aforementioned spots triggered a brief twinge of recognition in me. But even then, the memory of the actuality remained well beyond the threshold of retrieval, for frustratingly, I found I was unable to pull any of these loose threads of familiarity out any further. There had been the presence of the slightest thrum of trepidation to my every change of direction. But I'd grown so inured to so blatantly specious a signal by then that by its umpteenth reiteration, when my aimless circulation saw me take a spontaneous hard right through an unlabeled door, I paid it no heed. Do you know what that means, Thomas, that I paid it no heed? It means I gave it no attention. What I encountered past the door was a long straight corridor I expected to deposit me either inside of a car park or return to the street, somewhere to the back of the complex. The corridor was well lit—overlit, in fact—and no more ominous than any other section of the mall I'd passed through— a scuffed and functional passageway that must have been mindlessly traversed by thousands of transient employees and consumers since the day of its incorporation. It wasn't designed to be remembered by any of them. It wasn't even designed to be thought of. I'm at pains to describe all of this as accurately as I can to you, Thomas, to better communicate what happened next. I hope you're bearing with me.
1: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
2: today. Behind the door at the end of the short corridor wasn't a paved street or a car park. There wasn't a cupboard or a washroom or an office or even another shop. Instead, fairly incongruously, and yet by no means suspiciously so, I found myself inside of the municipal performance hall, with pale walls and long, deep-set windows situated on the left-hand side. There was a cozy, social, club-like quality to the atmosphere of the space. It wasn't a large space— a room meeting, the minimum requirement to be accurately termed a hall. A wholesome, yeasty aroma was faintly present in the air. The layered dust of honest and good-natured communal and coordinated activity, should that make sense to you, I'd obviously entered into the back end of a theater, as a stage was directly situated a few yards before me, narrow and low-set, extending off to the plain and functional eaves. Above my head was the timbered keel of the upper row, a pair of guide-rail staircases leading up to it on either side. There were things mounted on the walls between the thin-drawn curtains of the three sets of tall windows beyond the stairs, framed posters of past events and more official and advisory signage, I imagine. Fire equipment and something like a sound desk stood up against the vanilla white walls. Before the stage were laid out dozens of those collapsible and virtually weightless chairs, constructed of hollow metal tubes with thinly foam-cushioned leatherette backs and seats. These spread over perhaps six or seven rows. The fragility of the seating arrangement bestowed an aura of impermanence to the hall's interior, "'as if a coin toss currently midair might decide "'whether the chairs were to be left out a little longer "'or else stacked up in the wide aisles. "'All of the related I took in in a breath. "'Another second or so elapsed before I noticed a small boy "'sat among the middle of the rows. "'A second or two more passed before I noticed a thing further off on the stage.' Just a fraction to the side of the boy's line of sight, you may think it a difficult task for me to recognize the back of my own head. You might suppose it trickier still for me to recognize that anti profile without warning and then from a distance of both yards and years. "'These obstacles were indeed what lay between us, "'me and the boy I knew I once was, "'yet I assure you I did instantly recognize my younger self "'and then without the necessity of further confirmation. "'Here, Thomas, is where I foresee you making your first objection. "'This is the first of the impossibilities I warned you of. "'Yes, I do know what I am saying.' No, I don't care as to what you think. I only ask you to believe me when I say that's what I saw. There wasn't any doubt in my mind I was seeing myself. There still isn't. What wasn't so obvious in that moment was what I should do about it, or how I should respond to this utter, as I've acknowledged, impossibility. Fortunately, my body had its own wisdom. The cry of shock suffocated in my throat before I could emerge to announce my presence at the back of the hall. I was left mute to stare in frozen astonishment at the back of my own blond and tousled head. My child self seemed thoroughly oblivious to my adult self in the hall, thank goodness. That version of me was sitting just as still as the air around him in his flimsy seat. Of a sudden, I realized what I'd been up to all afternoon. For the past few hours, I'd been on the trail of a ghost. That ghost was the memory of myself. And at last, I'd been unlucky enough to catch up with it. There it was now. What little I could discern of the boy's loose jumper— and the high collared checkered shirt beneath it becoming increasingly familiar. There was the old wind-cheater I used to have, the lifeboat orange one, slunk haphazardly over the back of the occupied chair. Such garments would have been arrestingly anachronistic on a contemporary frame, even outside in the mall. It would seem axiomatic of ghosts for them to be dead first operating principle, one could say, and the boy might very well have been that type of entity. He was staring, as if wide awake and determinedly engaged, straight ahead. I knew it. I knew instinctively his stillness was born of an intense concentration. Naturally, my eyes immediately moved on to travel the same pathway— That's when they were also captured by the thing hanging over the stage. Of course, the boy had to be seeing it, too. How could he possibly have dared to shut his eyes even for a second in its presence? Roughly a dozen strings supported the puppet. They were slender threads, but the darkness of the backdrop granted them a modicum of visible presence. What they supported was far too awful a load for anything other than themselves to hold. For how could anything else conceivably support such an immeasurable weight of calculated and condensed hideousness? That was my first reaction. Visceral disgust, I mean. The puppet was half the size of a full-grown adult, yet it possessed a presence vastly excelling any human limit— even to the extent of offending the function of sight by the sheer unmitigated strength of its being. I felt myself physically pushed back as much as I was internally repulsed by the puppet's unbelievable ugliness, near to the extent of finding myself stumbling automatically backwards through the door behind me and out of the hall. Still my muscles resisted the urge to be usurped, to make me flee, as so I clung fast to my place while absorbing the full evil majesty of the puppet. There was a delicate articulation to its hands and to its bare feet, both of which were exaggerated from life in their slenderness. Presumably further points of articulation to the elongated limbs were concealed under its rudimentary gown. The outsized head sat on the neck was roughly rendered, possibly deliberately so, and of bipartite design, a pair of symmetrical black lines running down the lower part of the face showing the insert of a jointed jaw. A subtly flushed arch separated the jutting chin from the hollow cheeks. The wicked and gloating face was that of an androgene. I think the puppet was intended to be identifiable as male, but of this I cannot be certain. The features were sculpted to convey no infirmity, but did communicate a very great age, although there was no beard or mustache in evidence. The shallow cheeks and the butting forehead I remember as being lightly pockmarked. The nose was long and pointed. The eyebrows were thick and raised high, "'serving to artificially open the sockets of the orbs beneath them the wider. "'The hair was a steeped and tangled floss of off-white filaments, "'lighter than the face and running down at the sides and the front "'to irritate the rough, pale-gray smock "'covering the pigeon-chested thing's narrow, slackened body. "'What it wore wasn't grand.' A square of gray muslin as rough-textured as sackcloth, and unadorned save for a pinching belt of the same coarse material tied around its almost hipless waist. Such meager garbing lent the figure a medieval, monk-like appearance. It was arguably druidical. The conical hat set atop its thickly wigged crown suggested a wizard. But all of these aspects of the puppets' crafting and costuming were, I think, empty trivialities which might have adopted any feasible form, and wouldn't have merited much different in the way of commentary had they done so. If its two large eyes could have sat fixed in place in the air without the need of adornment, then I'm convinced they would have, for in the entirety of the doll, as constructed, the eyes in its head were all— were everything, their unbreaking stare, dissolving away the importance of any of their connected facets. It means nothing, Thomas, absolutely nothing, for me to tell you the puppet's eyes were inhuman. They were so very much more than that. The puppet's eyes were astoundingly, stupefyingly ungodly. No wonder the boy I knew as my earlier self sat so completely rigid before it, so absolutely alive with attention. That same unworldly intensity imparted by the thing's gaze continued over the little blot head without weakening onward to where I was standing, rooted to the spot— I felt those hovering eyes penetrate my soul, just as they did the soul of the boy positioned half the distance between us, and I knew instantaneously they took a violent, unfathomable delight in what they discovered there. Forgive me, Thomas. I've described what I saw too vividly, far too vividly. Eventually, with the silent stealth of some infinitely superior creature's chosen prey, I managed to tear myself free from the spell of those damnable eyes and reconnected to time. I retreated through the door and down the corridor without disturbing the earlier version of myself and letting him know I was there. I then sat hyperventilating and heaving on a bench in the mall— It felt like my insides had turned into water, and poisoned water at that. I suppose to any to look closely at me, I would have appeared quite ill, even grieved. I expected at any moment to receive a glance of concern from one of the passers-by, but nobody appeared able or willing to pick up on my distress." After I'd gained enough in the way of strength and sanity to exit the nauseating place, I immediately did so. I went straight back to where I'd left the car, got in, and drove directly home. Even now, though, I don't think anyone could genuinely say I fully left the mall or fully escaped that monstrous puppet's satanically grinning regard. What I witnessed when I went into that little theater lying off from the mall must have come to pass, must it, Thomas? As a child, I was surely taken to take that charming little shopping precinct. There, I must have temporarily slipped the care of mum and dad, as every growing child is wont to do on occasion, such as cliché, lost you, and them and chance to stumble into that performance hall. There I'd been drawn in and forced to confront the puppet, suspended by some unidentifiable power from the fly on the stage, undergone at some blinking and immoral scrutiny. I'm certain this must be so, and therefore it tortures me. I can find no solid evidence to back up the supposition." Though one time I did raise the topic of this town and its small with our parents, they looked at me blankly and then with increased concern, and I knew then anything I'd go on to say about this weird place, clearly unknown to either of them, would have caused me to look even more insane. Already I felt crushed by their pity. But yes, yes, there simply has to exist a slender but indismissible slither of time— one lasting only a few minutes in duration, buried somewhere in my accumulated past, when I'd been drawn in and captured by their grotesque figure's destructive gaze. Not only had I forgotten the encounter until that hateful moment it had transpired while my older self was looking on at my suffering a short distance away and unobserved. It's pondering the possible meaning of that uncanny, twofold engagement with my twice-helpless self and the terrifying puppet that has driven me to where I find myself now. I've been unable to stop thinking about this appalling and ruinous incident in those first few weeks when things were most difficult for me. When I stopped going into work, I stopped answering my phone and responding to everyone. I thought dwelling on it and mulling it over would help me, but it didn't help, and it hasn't helped, Thomas, not in the slightest. However, I now understand how in that bizarre encounter in the strange hall and strange mall, I was at least granted the opportunity to witness the cause of my soul's undoing, Throughout my adult life, I've always secretly harbored the notion some awful tragedy must have befallen me, and some terrible catalyst I'd managed to blank out and suppress knowledge of was responsible for the steady sickening of my spirit, was responsible for the many subsequent years of conscious self-abuse and willful self-sabotaging. I've long recognized a core of self-defeating darkness exists inside my heart, an intrusion shiftless beyond stubbornness, a dire life-sapping pollution of fear and confusion, and beyond it an unshakable burden of misery and doom. For several decades I successfully managed to avoid acknowledging this fact, having erected a wall of expeditious denial between myself and this ever-present, ever-demonstrable truth but my encounter with the puppet at the start of the year has blasted that wall away and exposed the folly and futility of that deception. It's as though the puppet decided for its own merriment to remind me of all the damaging qualities my heart contains, to pull me back to it like a kite on a string, to rub my face afresh in the revolting truth of what it had on that inescapable day many years earlier put into me. Yes, I've slowly come to understand how my development to adulthood was irrevocably warped from the moment I exited the hall as a child. I'm sure you'll be objecting to this disclosure, telling me I'm wrong. I appreciate your concern, but alas, I know I'm right. I ask you, Thomas, to please try to reflect objectively on my various failings On the weakening of nerve I developed seemingly out of nowhere as a boy, on the moment, if you can determine it, when we first diverged in destiny as brothers, you growing rounded and sociable and confident, and me evermore defeated, agonized by doubts I couldn't dispel and by anxieties I could never successfully quieten, much less dismiss. Can you identify a better moment for when I first fell out of grace with the rest of the world? For when I first fell short of what I recognized the world demanded of me? I expect no answer, for I know none can be given. I'm positive I discovered that hypothetic point as I've described it to you in its totality. I can't imagine how you're taking this. But I do want you to appreciate how I'm choosing to end this letter on an optimistic note. As this terrible year for me reaches its conclusion, I feel as best I'm able to accurately determine my feelings in a better place than I've been in for the majority of it. At first, I tried to dissuade myself of the truth of my experience, but that approach I now accept was a mistake. A damaging mistake at that, as pursuing the lie led me only to further despair. I cannot help but reason the agony caused by my denial of the reality was an extension of the doll's punishment, that it was its intention for me to struggle away from the inward-facing teeth of the snare and thus to do myself additional psychic violence by the action of my attempting to move away from it Mercifully, I know better today, and I have surrendered. The secret to survival, better to say the secret to persistence, is for me to accept it all. Every last unpleasantness, every last mistake, every last regret, every last disappointment and failure of hope, and for me to make my peace with this kismet. So must I carry around the wound with the barb attached, striving to live as best I'm able the life left to me, as has been ordained, closely confining and impoverishing as it is and ever shall be. I only hope those who love me, who truly love me, like yourself, can understand and come to accept it too. This is what's best for me. I will live hereon in humility. My life's work revealed as being to accept this great weight of spiritual unhappiness I've been awarded. The only fear I cannot dispel is, I'll admit it, the fear the horrific being to look like a puppet will once again summon me back before it for another inspection. You will say, as I predicted, what I experienced that day wasn't real— that it was merely an hallucination, a short period of divorce from reality. I might have gone where I said I did, but the two elements of my subsequent trauma, the boy who was me and the puppet we instantaneously gazed upon, are both figments of an overactive imagination, a propensity to depression and mania and nothing more— I can clearly imagine you in that masculine, bolstering way of yours instructing me to get a firm grip on myself, to go back to that particular town in its small, and exercise out from my psyche these harmful delusions. It would indeed be a simple step to take, but the plain truth is I daren't return What would it happen if I were to walk back into the precinct again? What if I went down the corridor, I came across leading to the hall, as I'm sure you'd suggest I did were I to find it, and I once again caught sight of my own back, on this fresh occasion just one year younger in time and lurking just beyond the doorway, giving to the hall? What would I do then, Thomas? What would I do then? And what if I then found the courage to turn my head? What if I saw behind me a figure I recognized equally as intimately?' Oh, no, the thought of this, of my arriving on myself unknowingly, watching yet another version of myself, and then having that hideous assemblage of a doll, staring out at not just one or two, but three versions, maybe even four versions, maybe even more, of my disgraced and decaying being is altogether too atrocious for my mind to safely contemplate. I suppose when faced with my refusal to take so practical a step as you're surely suggesting, the next idea to occur to you might be the mention of hypnotherapy as a means of ridding my brain of so harrowing and destructive a memory. This well-meaning advice offered regardless of whether or not what I believed to have happened actually happened— However, although I'm sure it will sound unlikely, even counterintuitive, I confess the apex of my dread is that the memory of that little shopping precinct in that little town and of that little hall attached to it might somehow manage to fade from my mind a second time, and once more I'll receive punishment for the terrible puppet things erasure from my cognizance by being unwittingly compelled to go there again and confront anew the unblinking reality of its devastating appraisal that I couldn't survive. I do not know how you will take this apology, whether it is enough, whether it will be delivered, but I do know I'm gladdened by the thought that you have it now. As ever. With my sincerest love, your brother.
1: That was Greg Sturman's Grand Guignol, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.